When I was at little school, I was aware that writing was something which came from the center of me. Although I wouldn't be able to formulate it in this way, I knew I had a gift. Hello, I'm Catherine Fairweather, and this is the third act. I'm indebted to Sir Tom Stoppard for allowing me to interrupt his train of thought and writing schedule generously sharing his stash of toffees with me during a visit to his country retreat in deepest Dorset. The Czech-born, greatest British living playwright and screenwriter has said that Leopoldstadt, the contemplative, elegiac play that touches on autobiographical themes of roots, Jewishness, exile and identity, would be his swan song. But in the months since it opened to great acclaim on Broadway, we can't help getting the sense that he has still got a lot more to say, as I'm excited to discover over the course of the afternoon together. So, Tom Stoppard, it's wonderful that you've agreed to do this. And I must say, I know how busy you are and how often you get asked to talk on podcasts. And I really hope this is not going to feel like going to the dentist. I'm going to try and make this as painless as possible for Don't you. worry about that at all. <laughs> we were discussing how, at a certain time in your life, the past begins to be more interesting than the future or the present. Have you got to that stage yet? I think I've been at that stage for a while now, as a matter of fact. I do think about the past, the distant past, rather than the recent past. And I think that's probably quite normal for somebody of my age, because the past comes back with certain latent emotional layers to it. Memory in itself is interesting to me. Just, just knowing roughly what I do remember, and then also what what I've forgotten that comes up as well. And so, although it doesn't bother me, in effect, I'm keeping track of the rate at which I am forgetting things. And nowadays, I feel that. Forgetting things is what I'm best at. <laughs> forgetting your phone or forgetting your car keys or forgetting your... Well, forgetting the past, actually. Continually I'm being told about some meal or some event that I was present at and I have no trace of recollection of it. Mm. And at the same time, I'm remembering little things which happened to me when I was eight years old. What are those memory triggers for you? For example, I was a child in India between the age of four and eight. Looking back on it, I always felt it was a, a happy time in my life, which is a bit odd because my mother and my brother and I had fled from the Japanese in Singapore in 1942. My father was killed when he tried to leave Singapore on another boat a bit later because it was women and children first, as it were. Mm. And looking at India from my mother's perspective, she must have been continuously anxious. We didn't know what happened to my father. We didn't know that he was dead until pretty near the end of the war. My God, so years went by and she had no idea what had happened to him. Yes, she told me later that once or twice, you know, she'd go to Calcutta and see the Red Cross or some such institution uh, to see what news there was. And 
There was never any specific news about her husband, but it became clear that he hadn't survived. And in the long run, there were one or two people who'd been colleagues or friends of my father, whose name was Eugene Strausler, who were able to tell my mother roughly what happened to him. He got away on a boat which was sunk and so on and so forth. And um, a few years ago, quite a lot of years ago, I can't remember, I wrote an article about my childhood. In fact, I went back into my own life and went back to the Czech Republic as it had become. And I took about three months, I think, doing the traveling and talking and so forth. And uh, I think it was a kind of watershed in my own life because I've never really been anxious to look back. And even now, although I say I'm turned on by the past, really, and mm. nostalgic about certain things and curious about certain things in the past, even now, when it comes to work, I don't like looking back. I'm just not interested in looking back, and I want to look forward to what I do next. Yeah, well, you don't seem to be too much of a navel-gazer. I mean, quite a few writers mine their, their own history for, for stories. What interests me is that the stories there, even if you didn't feel connected to them, and that's pretty normal, I think. But as a writer, weren't you quite interested in all the, all the characters and what happened to them and the, the, the boundaries and the frontiers and history changing and the flux? And wasn't that of, of some interest to you? I'm a different kind of writer. I've never really written about my own past and people that I ought to be interested in and so on, I tend to seize upon some quite abstract idea, which I then have to people. Yeah, and, like mathematics. <laughs> uh, well, perhaps, yeah. yes. And I have to figure out the, not only who the people are, but what the story is, mm. because without a story, you don't really have anything. Mm. So rather than being somebody who starts, I think you just used the phrase, mining my own past. No, I don't. I'm mining on the kind of edge of things I don't understand yet mm. and would like to understand more. What triggers those interests? I, I know you, you're a collector of books. You have a huge library. Does your interest, the threads of your interests, are they pretty random? What one thing leads to another? You're spot okay. on. Uh, it's mostly from what I'm reading. Mm. And although I read entirely for pleasure, that's slightly misleading because what I take pleasure in, well, quite often it's, it's an intellectual pleasure. I read a lot of philosophy and some history, contemporary history too, of course, and... So I'm having a wonderful time reading around, and one book leads to another in some quite non-linear way. Uh, it just kinks into another subject or another area of interest. And I'm doing it because I enjoy doing it. Mm. I read every night of my life for at least normally a couple of hours before I put the light out. But all the time I'm reading for pleasure, part of my brain is thinking there might be a play in this mm. or that. And at the moment, at this very moment, really, like today, it's 
coming up to three years since Leopold's my last death. play was in a rehearsal. It's a long time. And I haven't written anything for myself in those three or four years. I'd love to write a play, and I'm ready to do that, and rather cross with myself for not having got anything going. It's extraordinary. Your your plays are still being put on. I mean, Rosencrantz and um, Hilderstone are dead. Was put on 50 years after it first came on the stage, wasn't it? Quite recently. It was revived. Yeah. Um, a few times, yes. That must give you quite a lot of satisfaction. It does, I must confess to that, because my attitude towards writing and being a writer is quite a lot to do with posterity. When I started trying to write plays, I didn't want to write them to be done and forgotten. I wanted to add to the store of of English plays that was, you know, always around. Well, that can't happen with every play, but it's about uh, the stuff living on. Obviously, you write because you like writing and it came to you and you realised you were good at it. Did it come easily to you or is it blood, sweat and tears when you are writing a play? What's the process? I'm very slow, you know, blood, sweat and tears when I have to write prose, uh, an article, for example. Plays, I don't find difficult in that way. I don't find dialogue. When I'm writing dialogue between two or three invented people, every line seems to suggest itself to me. I don't really have to work from line to line at all. Mostly I'm turned on by some quite abstract, mm. as it were, intellectual thought or idea, whether it's about an ideology or about a philosophy, whatever it might be. So I think uh, the characters and the situations I end up writing, it's <laughs> retro-engineering. I'm already up for writing lines for this kind of person. That's why that mm. kind of person is in the play in mm. the first place. Something like that. If you actually consider my plays and the people in them, what I've said doesn't seem to bear much truth. It doesn't actually seem to describe kind of things I write, but that's how it appears to me. I'm never floundering about what kind of voice this person would have, what kind of mind, what kind of vocabulary. I'm never searching and floundering about. In a way, the hard part is over before I start writing the play. Is that what gets you up in the morning, the idea the idea in your head that you will put... Uh, sorry, yes. do you write long, you write longhand with a fountain pen? I do, yes. I've got several fountain pens, three or four. Uh, but there's one particular one which just for no reason at all has the perfect nib. And uh, Black ink? Blue-black. If I lost that pen, I'd feel that there would be an extra hurdle I'd have to get over before I could write something. Uh, but I do use a pen... And getting up in the morning, eager to get on with things, that would and will, I hope, happen again once I've actually got the, to the top of page one. <laughs> does smoking help you think or does it help you write or do you not smoke when you're writing? I smoke 
a lot while I'm writing, or as you see, when I'm being interviewed. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. So what can I say about it? Uh, I feel... I, don't apologize. Well, I've been slightly sheepish about it, but I have been smoking now for, you know, 60 years. You look pretty fit. And I'm not fit in the sense that, you know, I huff and puff if I have to walk up a hill. But um, Sabrina's very keen on walking. She's very keen on me walking. And I mostly oblige by going for a walk. And now we have the prospect of owning a dog in a few days. And I think part of the raison d'etre is that I will be taking the dog for a walk. Uh, we'll see how we go. Well, if you've got a dog, you're not going to be traveling. Maybe that's no loss to you. You're a big no. traveler. I've never been a huge traveler, but I used to be excited by traveling. I mean, very excited the first time I'd go to a country. When I was in my early 20s, crossing the channel for the first time and seeing that the billboards in Dieppe mm. were actually in French, you know, one did feel like Marco Polo suddenly. <laughs> and it was just thrilling. The first time you go to Italy, all of that, and indeed New York. But now everything has turned turtle, and I don't really want to leave the village, actually, but I expect I will again. Were you always a pool de luxe when you travelled, or did you, were you a hair shirt man? Well, uh, I was a hitchhiker, not by choice, but in my early days I did quite a lot of hitchhiking and putting up in places where there were bed bugs and you know the whole thing it's not it's not such a big deal when you're young i guess i was 22 before i left england so where did you go on holidays with your parents your mother and stepfather fishing in scotland fishing in wales fishing everywhere in england in childhood every holiday was a fishing holiday and your mother didn't fish did she no, she sat on the bank with the Daily Mail and she'd made the sandwiches. It was, it was nice. Do you still fish? I think I've just stopped um, because the other day when it was time to pay my subscription to the little local club, uh, which is the last fishing I've been doing, apart from a kind of golden ticket I don't deserve where a nice friend gives me a day on the test usually once a summer. That apart, I think I've stopped because although I look okay sitting on the sofa fully dressed, actually my body from the knees downward doesn't work terribly well. And um, where I fish, you need uh, full-length waders because yeah. it's a small stream but it can be deep and it's hard to fish except from standing in the water. And I don't think my body can take it anymore, actually. Did you fish in the Himalayas? Because I, you wrote a most beautiful thing about Darjeeling and the sight of the Himalayas rising from the mist. Have you been back to Darjeeling? I don't know what I did in India. I was at boarding school most of the time. And uh, when I went back, I guess I was in my 40s. It was... Uh, Incredibly moving. It was what you and I were talking about a few minutes ago, about getting interested in how memory works. I was at school for a couple of years with my brother, 
in a big boarding school, not, not a posh Raj school. It was an American school, actually, started by Methodists, and it was a multiracial school, boys and girls. And um, going back to revisit and seeing the dormitory I slept in, all that was intensely moving. And, and also, something had lodged in my mind. I don't quite know why. I, I think I've probably put it into a place somewhere where I remember walking along a corridor thinking that everything was going to be okay. Everything was all right and always would be. I don't know why I had this strange moment, but uh, I used to dream about it. And to go back and find the corridor was very strange. Well, you have an angel sitting on your shoulder who's been, your guardian angel has been yes. with you this yes. extraordinary life. Yes. Uh, you called it her charmed life before. I remember reading something in the book by Hermione Lee, the biography about you. One bit, little incident really remained with me because that idea of feeling charm or that you're you're lucky was you were with your first girlfriend and you she had lost a ring on the beach and I think the next day you went back to the beach and you had your hands in the sand and you raked up out the ring and that seemed to be very symbolic because maybe symbolic of the fact that you felt yourself to be so lucky and that sense of feeling that you were lucky has been a thread throughout your life, hasn't it? Well, you're quite right uh, to bring up the phrase charmed life, because for a period of my life, not very long ago, it's a phrase I used about myself, and I, I knew what I meant by it, which was that I'd been scooped out of the way of the Nazis, yeah, and then out of the way of the Japanese. And, of course, it's tragic for my mother that my father was killed, but her English husband brought us back to England, and we might have ended up back in Czechoslovakia living under communism. So right. in a certain yeah. way, I could see that at certain junctures... The uh, sliding door moments. That's right. But then I began to feel bad about using the phrase because it was actually pointed out for me that... Uh, I've been acting very blind about the fact that a lot of my mother's family and my father's family had perished in the Holocaust. And somehow I, I failed to put it down in the ledger of my life. And when the thought came home to me in that way, that more than anything, and it must have happened not all that long ago, say 10 years ago, or even less than 10, that got me into writing a play about a family not unlike my own and... Leopoldstadt. And Leopoldstadt, which is about the murder of most of this family I'd invented. And I put myself as a young man into the end of the play. You know... Leon. Um, a young Viennese who being brought to England with a stepfather at the age of eight. And I thought that would be the second half of the play. It turned out to be just the last part of the play. But there's these few minutes, 15 minutes or so, which 
contains this character who is certainly me at that age. The ending when when they're back in the, the house that they had and everything's gone and there's this sense of terrible loss but awakening as well. I, I, can't, I can't, just reading about the description of the ending, I find it very difficult. I, I find it very difficult not to cry. Was it cathartic? Um, to some extent, yes. I wasn't writing in tears. Um, you probably never do write in tears, do you? No, I don't. You have to be in control. You have to have your wits about you. And you have to be writing inhabiting not so much the characters as the audience, which is to say that I'm aware that I'm working in, a, in an art form which manifests itself as a bunch of actors speaking to each other in a large room full of people who've paid for the privilege of eavesdropping mm. and those people can, as it were, leave any time they like. Mm. Um, so whatever the subject matter of the play is, however cathartic that might be, one is working as a playwright writing for an audience. Yeah. I think one of the things I've said can be slightly misleading. You do have to be in charge, but at the same time, the play is telling you which way it's going. It's not all preordained. You, you haven't worked it out all in advance. You're in charge of it, but it's in charge of you at the same time. So this business of creating places where one laughs or one has a tear in one's eye, these are the, the consequences of where your mind has taken you. They're not, as it were, the reason for writing the next line. It all sounds quite kind of poncy, really, slightly pretentious, you know, because, but the truth is, that you have to be truthful mm. as much as you can. Uh, and that's what I mean when I say that the play is in charge of you, because mm. at every point, the thing you write next has got to be truthful. I mean, I could go on about, go into more depth and detail about your plays, but let's talk more about you. <laughs> Would your 21-year-old self have been amazed by your... My 21-year-old self would um, be saying, well, you've done exactly what you hoped. You've, you've made yourself into a, a well-known writer, and that's what you wanted to be. And you once said that you would really enjoy a retirement where you imagined yourself in a house near Bath with a load of fruit trees and reading Jade Austen. Is that still your idea of happiness? You probably don't even want to retire now. So when you, whenever you said that, you imagined retirement, but retirement isn't on the cards. I'd be quite happy, actually, if uh, I uh, ended up wanting to write a poem and spending months trying to write it. As long as I were doing that, I'd consider myself still to be at work. I do love Jane Austen, but I'm not an Austenite, really. I'm not sure that... I don't remember saying that, by the way, but I'm sure, it, I'm sure I did. My mother loves reading, and, uh, and I've loved reading as long as I can remember. You know, you mentioned earlier something about discovering that you could be a writer and so forth. But when I was at little school... 
I was aware that writing a page about something or other was something which came from the center of me, although I wouldn't be able to formulate it in this way. I knew I had a gift. And when you expressed that gift, when you started writing, did you feel the detached stance, the, the, the stance of the observer, outsider, important in your writing? Or when you reconnected with your Jewish, um, this is the second part of the question, when you reconnected with your Jewish side, did that make you feel more outsider-ish or more insider-ish? I'm trying to connect the very English Tom Stoppard with the outsider Tom Stoppard who came here when he was 10 years old from everywhere, from Czechoslovakia via Singapore and India. I think we all live from the inside outwards, I think. So I was the person I was. I, I knew that. I was going to say I'd never be concerned with how I am perceived or observed. Mm. I'm not sure if that's entirely true, but it doesn't, it's not a large part of my consciousness wondering how I'm being perceived. And you feel comfortable everywhere. You feel yourself everywhere. Yeah. I mean, quite often if I meet somebody I sort of venerate or I'm slightly in awe of, then I hear myself talking nonsense. Who do you venerate now, today? Um, no, it could be anybody. I mean, I was invited to a party quite recently during Wimbledon. So I went outside the front door to have a cigarette, and there was John McEnroe. And looking back on it, I would say, you know, to my horror, uh, I started telling him about being a young reporter going to the West of England Tennis Championships <laughs> in the mid-50s when Lou Hode and, and Ken Rosewall were, were the top players. And at the time, I was thinking, I bet he finds this absolutely fascinating. And <laughs> five minutes later, I thought, oh, Jesus. <laughs> I'm one of nature's fans. I'm not one of nature's stars. I'm a fan. I think that's pretty charming. You're often described as being quintessential Englishman. What is Englishness now? I mean... Now? Now. It's, it's become a fugitive idea, mm, a very exactly. elusive idea. And it certainly isn't what I thought it was, or perhaps it isn't what it used to be. It's a lot to do with the, the way that all kinds of nationalities meet and merge and collide and, and bounce off each other and join forces. When I first came to London as a teenager, spent a day walking around, it was like London before the war. So Englishness was not exactly cordoned off, but one felt that all countries were, in an extent, cordoned off from each other. It's only comparatively recently in social history that people started going to other countries mm. regularly and often. So London now, the West End of London, on a... Friday night, it's an utterly, utterly different mm. England. In this last two years, have you enjoyed having all this time away from the world? You know, you've been in this wonderful cocoon 
Has it felt like a cocoon for you? Have you been able to? Well, I'm not a, I'm not a hermit yet, though it is my ambition, admittedly. I'm going to London less and less, true mm. enough. And I love being in this village in Dorset. Mm. I'm very kind of self-sufficient if I've got books and pencils and pens and paper. Uh, and, of course, my periodicals coming through the letterbox. And has it made you think about um, endings, mortality? Death, are you talking yes, about? Yes, I'm talking about death. Have you, do you ever think about death and oh, dying? I, oh, I do, yes. One can't help thinking of, you know, hu the human individual being a biological machine and the bits start falling off and the machine, you know, starts stuttering, falling over, whatever. Uh, you can't help but thinking of the biological machine with a certain lifespan and then it stops working and that, that's it, you've gone. The tick-tock of the universe, you called it once. Yes. In the same breath, I was talking about the tock tip as well. <laughs> so you're trying to recover something. Anyway, I know what you're asking me. And the answer is I don't spend a long time brooding about, the, about death. I'm 85. I know lots of people who are older than I am. And I'm also aware that the obituaries I read are most often of, of people who are perhaps a bit younger than I am. Mm. And come to think of it, it's probably slightly significant that when I look to see what year the person had been born in, mm. there's, always, there's always a little flare of hope that when it turns out that the person was born before I yes, was. So it's competitive. Yeah. Obituaries. Yeah. Um, so what happens? What do you think happens to us when we die? Do you, do you believe in any kind of afterlife? Not in any way that there's literal, no. no. I am some kind of apprehension about the the way one dies, not of death itself. You know, you read to people and you th about people having a stroke and you think, oh gosh, I wonder what that's like. Will it happen to me? Or people who have a cancer or who have a heart attack. These are all possibilities. One would like to just keep going until one gets slower and slower and finally stops without mm. ever having been actually ill. Mm. That would be... Perfect. Perfect. What are the good things about getting older? For many people, getting older takes them out of the competition, so it's more restful than life used to be. I think I've always been quietly competitive without wanting to own up to that. Has, has it always been hard to finish a play for you? I mean, do you find endings difficult in your plays? No, I... I don't find endings difficult. As a matter of fact, um, you know, I write from the top of the play to the bottom in the right order. There'll be a dozen versions of page one and progressively fewer and fewer versions of pages. And when it comes to the last page, I don't think there's any rewriting that you actually need to do. There's only one way to go. At a certain point, you need to know exactly how your play finishes. I say that. I'm not sure it's always been true. Um, 
But when it comes, you certainly know it. Well, I find it very difficult to end this conversation with you because there are so many questions I'd like to continue to ask you. But I think we must finish it. And I just want to thank you very much, Sir Tom Stoppard, for talking to me today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. This episode was produced by Pete Norton and brought to you by Orion's luxurious residences that are redefining later living in the heart of Chelsea. I'm Catherine Fairweather, and I'm looking forward to seeing you next week for another episode of The Third Act. <laughs>